John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 17. Entry 108.EX3035, Certificate Number 36682. Beaver Castorium. Can't believe a futureling had some addenda about Beaver Castorium. Well, it was worse than that. You got your... um. You've had your anecdotes checked by a listener named Robert. Well, first of all, uh, Armchair Rambo reminded us that there's a we were I think we were discussing how to pronounce ambergris or ambergris. Yeah, and uh, Armchair Rambo pointed out that it's uh, it's the name of a guided by voices song off one of their very first lo-fi. Records. Oh, sure. One of the very few Guided by Voices songs. Yeah, they've used every other word <laughs> in the English language as a title. So now they're using two-word combinations. And I don't know how Bob says it. If I, I mean, it's a Guided by Voices song, so it's about 40 seconds. Do you think he ever says the name of the song? It's less likely. Boy. Oh, it's about ambergris and perfume. What's that you're eating? It could be displeasing. It's very much uh, has a sort of drunken sing-song. This is the most produced song on this record, I think. (laughs) This really opened up in indie rock sort of a bad trend of feeling like you could release anything. This kind of reminds me of, we were talking about Adventure Time earlier. And it was reminding me that I don't love the trend of uh, people who do these cute kind of indie animated shows and then just have all the writers do the voices. Adventure time, among each friends. Because you can, you know, it just sounds like guys talking. Yeah. Hey, hey what's up? Hey, oh, I, I don't know. I, I'm the I'm Rick and also Morty somehow. Yeah, I'm the I'm his friend, the like, guy from there. Hire actors. Okay, what we've learned is that Bob Pollard never pronounces the word amber because he asks. What's that you're eating? What's that you're smelling? And it's implied that the answer is ambergris. Ambergris or ambergris. Um, ambergris. But, but he doesn't. <laughs> really? That's if it's in a burger. Ambergris. Uh, but you also got your. Um, I got fact checked. You got fact checked by Robert because you said you had seen beaver in Lake Washington, which had repulsive teeth. And he wants to say those probably weren't beaver, those were nutria. 
Now, it's true that there are invasive nutria in Lake Washington, but there are beavers in Lake Washington. Yes. And they both have repulsive teeth. Yes. And I guess what you, you would be able to tell them apart by the tail. Yes. Beaver would have the big, flat Canadian tail, and nutria would have those little disturbing rat tails that, that make them so disturbing. Yes, that's right. Um, the nutria in Lake Washington are not, there are not so many nutria in Lake Washington that they've become, that they've like pushed the beavers out. But also a beaver is very definitely a beaver, whereas a nutria I think you'll Who knows find what it is. It's like not a beaver. You know what I mean? A nutria is one of those like fake Greek mythology animals that's like it's got the paws of a lion and then it's got the head of a dragon. Yeah. And then it's got the belly of a eagle. Mm. Yeah. So you're gonna say to Robert that you stick by your story and you were in fact seeing beaver. As someone who has experienced beaver. Congratulations. I can tell a beaver. But from a nutrient. But you can't tell him much. We have both here, Robert. Please don't assume that every every time every ugly thing you see in like Washington is a nutria. It might not be. Yeah, I mean, if you assume you make an azu of m mm and eh. Entry 1136.ps1848. Certificate number 26161. Sergeant Stubby. I'm afraid I made a little bit of fun of New Britain, Connecticut. Oh, don't so, ever do that. Well, I heard from... There are a lot of tough characters in New Britain, Connecticut. I heard from a New Britisher, a New Britishman, mm-hmm. who says... Well, I mean, he's explaining why it's so great, and really, he just says, our two biggest claim to fame, two biggest claims to fame are Houston Astros cheater George Springer and Trump crony Paul Manafort, and, you know, downtown is pretty run down, and the baseball team left for Hartford. Oh, but, that was a, a dark day. But despite all this, he says, New Britain has an amazingly diverse community that has learned to embrace each other since forever, and I'm happy to have it as my hometown. Well, well I, I don't think I ever. Impl- I don't think I ever implied, Alex, that you were not happy to have it as your hometown. That's one of those. That that's one of my favorite, of me. favorite guy to buy voices songs. <laughs> Thank you for sticking up for New Britain. New Britain has a population of 73,000 people, which is about 70,000 people more than I thought. Don't you think it dropped a little while you were reading that, though? Oh, perhaps. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's home of Central Connecticut State University. <laughs> oh, yeah. Go, <laughs> go CSCU. Oh, did you know that its official nickname is Hardware City? Because they used to make hardware They used there. to make plier, needle-nose pliers there or yeah, something? it was the headquarters of Black & Decker. Really? Yeah. Black and Decker was in New Britain. I had no idea. New Britain. Also, because of its large Polish population, uh, the city is often playfully referred to as New Britsky. I feel like you are now in the pocket of the New Britain Chamber of Commerce. Uh, James had, uh, Billy uh, pointed out that Sergeant Stubby is actually on display right now in the Smithsonian. We mentioned that he'd been taxidermied. He's on display. Yeah, you could go right now. You could go as you're, stop listening to this right now. Go. Go to the Smithsonian. I'm sure they're open at, at, 25% 25% capacity or something. Uh, and James pointed out that uh, Norway has its own Sergeant Stubby, a king penguin named... That's not your own Sergeant Stubby. Named, well, they're from Norway. They're reaching. There are For, no penguins in Norway. Norway is a pioneer of Antarctic exploration as well. Oh, sure, just because, of, course, of course. Just because they... Uh, they were used to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, most countries are so much better than Antarctica, they don't even try. 
Norway, it's kind of a wash. They're like, come on. We do this every day. Uh, but Norway has its, you know, this penguin appears to have a, the rank of brigadier in the Norwegian <laughs> army. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about the Norwegian army. Well, also it's still, the current one is still alive. So it's more like a, it's more like a service academy mascot. I see. I think. And also. It's a lassie situation. Also, where would you think that um, brigadier N- Nils Olaf III lives? Being being such a New Britain, Connecticut hero, of, hero of Norway. He lives in the Edinburgh Zoo in Scotland. Oh. Norway, get your come get your penguin back. What is that about? I don't the, know. The, the, the Scots have have a Norwegian general in captivity. Did they loan him out? Oh, what is war? Do, is there no is there out. no zoo in Norway that can take Nils Olaf? I guess the origin goes back to 1961. Oh. When, do the, do, the, do a, the Norwegians have a Scottish general in a, in a zoo? <laughs> a Norwegian army lieutenant visited the Edinburgh Zoo, or was visiting Edinburgh for some kind of drill display. He had a penguin in his vest pocket. He went to the Edinburgh Zoo and became fascinated by the zoo's penguin colony, and so he arranged for the regiment to adopt a penguin. So the, the Norwegian iconic penguin has always been a Scot. I see. I see. This, was, this is an adoption scandal. The the these Norwegians sound drunk. <laughs> yeah, he I be- love the penguin. Became interested in the zoo's penguin. Here, my Translation had to be dragged off the zoo I ground. I to join our army. Well, he's. St- it looks like they just re- when he dies, they replace him like Lassie. There's no taxidermy involved, and so. the Norwegians can't tell the difference, and they don't know how penguins are. And that's what we should have done with Sergeant Stubby. Yeah. Honestly, we should have just found a similar looking mutt. Who would have known the difference? And dressed him up and trotted him out on USO tour every year. The Norwegian regiment visits. Scotland, and they go, I can't believe he's still alive. This this penguin is a miracle. Draw some of its blood. This time it's a flamingo. <laughs> Entry 107.EX2512. Certificate number 51290. The Beatles, the Beatles, Lord of the Rings. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, Lord of the Rings. Uh, we talked about how there were both authorized and unauthorized versions of Tolkien's work because of some copyright loophole in the U.S. Oh, I bet, you know, now that I think about it, The Beatles, Lord of the Rings, you know, I haven't been on Facebook in a couple of months, so I wasn't there to see the nerdgasm <laughs> that surely must have taken place. It was less than the Lego one, I think. Oh, sure. Well, we ju- most of that was just we pronounced it wrong, right? Pe- people were happy. Um Michael actually sent in a scan of his copy of the old Ballantine edition, which was the legal one. It actually has on the back did a he, little— Did he say it was a sext? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> uh, in some communities, that would have been considered a sext. Well, you can, you can read the sext here. It's from Tolkien himself. On the back, there's a little yellow box that says, A statement from the author about this American edition. And then Tolkien, in quotes, says— this paperback edition and no other waggle waggle has been published with my consent and cooperation with a hyphen. Those who approve of courtesy, at least to living authors, wow, will purchase it. Harumph. and no other. But you would not you would not see this admonition unless you'd purchase the book, right? Or, <laughs> right. I mean, if you're, well, I mean, if you're in a store, yeah, you're in a drugstore spinner rack, and there for some reason there's two Return of the Kings. And one of them has a little yellow box where this guy's harumphing at you. Yeah. Courtesy, parenthesis, at least, to living authors. Sure. 
you're not you're not obligated to show courtesy to dead authors. Apparently, there's other things that you should the values that would keep you from an unauthorized book, but courtesy at the very least should suffice. At the very least, it's the least you can do. So, does that book, does that Ballantine paperback, have any? I mean, if you go to Comic Con and people are waving their copies of Return of the King, and you pull that one out, does it? Does it get you to the head of the lunchroom line or what? Do you think you're asking if it's like a collector's item? Yeah, or just like some kind of. I don't think these are all that rare. Bragging rights? I don't know. I mean, they probably sold enough in this edition. Yeah. That they were, that they were not rare. It's not like a, it's not like that, that postage stamp with Frodo upside down. (laughs) We also had, uh, from, you mentioned in the episode that, uh, the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings was considered as a um, segment in Fantasia, right? Which I thought couldn't possibly be right. I was too polite to say so. Sure, sure, sure. And in fact, it was almost right. Billy found the reference in Neil, oh, Neil Gaiman's right, eh? Neil Gaiman's Walt Disney autobiography or biography, mm-hmm. where he points out that uh, one of the you know they were kicking around classical music ideas for Fantasia. The problem is it's 1940, which predates Lord of the Rings. But they were interested in ideas that they could derive from maybe a Wagner opera. And somebody said, oh, there's a new book that has, you know, that's Germanic inspired and has magic rings and whatnot. Right. Because The Hobbit had been written in the late 30s and, you know, was was new. Sure. That was not a hit or a standard. No. By but, any means. But if you're, if, you're making a, if you're making a movie where a mouse is a wizard, why wouldn't you make a movie where a... Where a a little hairy-footed person stole gold from a dragon. Yeah, uh, Mickey could have played Gandalf. Hmm. Oh, sure, right. No, well, actually, hmm. may- maybe the sorcerer plays Gandalf and Mickey plays Frodo. Mickey plays Frodo. This is like what they do in Mickey. Mi- is such a Bilbo. Oh, right, Bilbo. He's not a, he wouldn't be a Frodo. My bad. Yeah. That's pre-Frodo. But am I wrong? I mean, he's more of a, he's more of a Bilbo. Mickey is more of a Bilbo than... Whoever that American actor it is that played Frodo, cast all pointy of, nose. cast all of the Hobbit with Disney characters in the manner of Mickey's Christmas Carol. Like who is Gollum? Donald Duck. Well, that's are, a. Are the dwarves all uh, Huey, 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 and Louie, Louie and Louie and Louie and Louie and Oin no, and like who's the who's the most dwarfy? Uh, I mean, Donald Duck is is pretty grouchy. I feel like. I feel like Pluto is kind of, um, well, yeah. Pluto can be the dragon. But Pluto is so happy and the dragon, well, I guess the dragon's pretty happy until he gets interrupted. There's not a lot of fun supporting cast. No, I'm thinking about Daisy Duck and Minnie Mouse. There's no love interest for for any, well, there's never any women in Tolkien. Right. I Uh, think you got to make Goofy, Smog, and you got to make Scrooge McDuck Gollum. But oh boy, I just he's don't a, see he's it. Scottish Gollum. I don't. I I, I feel like Gollum's got to be more pathetic. Scrooge McDuck is only pathetic when you consider how materialism has hardened his heart. Oh wait, that's the story of Gollum. You're that's, absolutely that's right. That's what I'm saying. His little dime. Oh my precious. Sure. Wow. Deep. But you know, Gollum has to be naked, so he can't be wearing a sailor suit or whatever Scrooge McDuck a monocle wears. A, and a top hat. Oh, a, a vest or something. Yeah. Uh. Well. Uh, we've having said all this. Now we own the rights That's to right. this adaptation. As soon as Mickey Mouse is in the public domain and The Hobbit, right. we will be making any day now Mickey's Hobbit. 
Entry 197.JB2825. Certificate number 47447. Henry Cavendish. The uh, eccentric but influential British scientist. Uh, Neil sent us a Henry Cavendish fact that he and his friends used to love in the high school science club. Uh, this doesn't sound at all like something that a high school <laughs> science club It's from uh, like. Isaac Asimov's Biographical Encyclopedia of Science and Technology, which I should really own a copy of. I had a bunch of those Asimov pop reference guides from the 70s and 80s when he was writing don't. about Shakespeare and humor and chemistry and everything. Uh, Asimov notes that Cavendish's electoral, electrical experiments also proved his superhuman devotion to science. He had no talent for inventing instruments. Wait a second. Our whole show is about him inventing that massive uh, uh, torsion ballast. Sounds to me like Asimov is jealous. And he measured... Asimov was too busy, like, groping women while he was researching this sentence. He had no talent for inventing instruments, and he measured the strength of uh, electrical current in a very direct way. He would just shock himself with the current or the charge and estimate the pain. So this was Cavendish's way of estimating electric current instead of inventing a voltmeter or a, or whatever. Did he have that little poster that they have in delivery rooms where there's <laughs> the like a, a, the the girl with an increasingly disturbed face uh, to indicate which level of of labor pain you're in? This does remind me of the guy that got stung by all the insects. What's that? Uh, what's that pain scale called? Uh, somebody actually devised a scale to compare the pain of the Schmidt pain scale. The B thousand pain scale. <laughs> yeah, they're all named for <laughs> guided by voices songs. Uh, and Schmidt was literally named after uh, etym- entomologist Justin Schmidt, who uh, just started stinging himself with stuff huh. and deciding whether it was a one through a four. Seems cool. Um, Why have we not done an omnibus on him? But, you know, this only works up to a point. Cavendish's idea that you can just measure the pain of any current. Yeah, eventually you would shock yourself into unconsciousness, and then how would you know? You need a second person timing the unconsciousness. Right. So the scale becomes discomfort up to a certain point, and then it becomes Flips over. time on the ground. Entry 1082.NU1911. Certificate number 27337. Rosa Luxemburg's body. We heard from our friend uh, Mike here. Hi, Mike here. Mike often uh, feels like he's entitled to a lot of addendum mentions. Yeah, Mike Mike makes a, a reappearance quite often. What does Mike have to say about in, in Rosa a, Luxemburg? In a future entry, a regular entry, you're going to hear that he actually sent us a souvenir to commemorate his appearance in the addenda shows. I don't want to spoil that. Right, right. Uh, well, we mentioned the Spanish Inquisition, and Mike wanted to just— No one mentions the Spanish Inquisition. Mike wanted to stand up for the Spanish Inquisition. He wrote us an email just to defend the Spanish Inquisition. Mike's, Mike needs to get body-checked back into his chair. It's a hot take. The what? Spanish Inquisition, not so bad. Really? I guess uh, he, he, chalks it up to, he chalks up their bad reputation largely to just anti-Catholic sentiment. Oh. In fact, the Inquisition, he writes, was uh, fairly uh, pleasant, and many many offenders would choose to have their uh, crimes addressed by the Inquisition rather than a civil court because the Inquisition was just so much more chill. So chill. They were just, just Pe- vibing. People, people chose to have their entrails pulled out by the Inquisition because they were so much chiller than the civil authorities. That's why no one expected it, because, you know— they yeah. were just they were just hanging out. Hey man, what's up? How's it going? So I don't know about I don't know about Mike's hot Spanish Inquisition take, but I thought I was duty bound to pass it along. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. He also told us what Hoya's 
meant, but I don't really uh, remember. Huh. Like the well, George, good the job, Ken. Georgetown mascot. <laughs> <laughs> well I th- done. <laughs> I think during the show I said Georgetown Hoyas, and that comes from the word Hoya, meaning which is Greek for something. And he t- he took that as a he sat up upright in his chair. He right. bolted upright like a little bunny with his, I know the answer. with his ears erect and and started Googling. We're teasing you a little bit here, Mike. We, we love you, Mike. Uh but several people in the Rosa Luxemburg's body show, we mentioned that one of the uh the body that was found has been linked to Rosa based on doing isotopic analysis of the remains and using that to determine where she might have, where the person in question, whose cadaver it is, might have been raised. Right. And then, uh, and you asked me, how does that work? And I was like, well, I don't know. I hope somebody tells us. Yeah. I, isotopic, uh, what was it? Analysis? Isotopic analysis seems like a thing that'll really bring the futurelings out of the uh, off of the bench. It really did. No <laughs> fewer than I mean, there were several people on Facebook, and then we got emails from John and Trevor and Ian. I think m- maybe some of these were on social media, all of whom like use either you know have reason to use isotopic analysis in their work. We heard from an archaeologist hmm. uh, or who have studied it in. Uh, oh, here's uh, one of them's a geology grad student who's someone claiming to be an archaeologist studying, or a graduate. Do you uh, do you often email graduate. people complaining, uh, pretending to be an archaeologist? It's one of it's one of my beards. <laughs> I'm like, a, as an archaeologist, that's you on Quora. I believe that. <laughs> I start all my Quora replies <laughs> as an archaeologist. <laughs> Uh, no, on Quora, I'm only arguing with people about old Spitfires and Japanese zeros. Well, that's, that's something an archaeologist could do. Oh, and, and American muscle cars. The, uh, so here's the deal with how you can use radioisotopes to identify where somebody's remains are from. The, okay. the key here is that you're not using the kind of unstable isotopes that we associate with radiocarbon dating. Like, right. you know, I've you, dated a lot of those unstable isotopes. <laughs> like you can tell when uh, you, know, you, you determine how old something is by figuring out how much of the carbon-14 has right. has turned into carbon-12. Right. Or whatever. I do that all the time. Uh, in this case, you're using stable isotopes that stay put. Wait a minute. And then unstable isotopes all around them fall away, or the stable isotopes tell you something? The stable isotopes tell you something. There are elements like strontium sure. and neodymium right. that come in varying flavors, and... The watersheds in different parts of the world have different amounts of that particular strontium-86 or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So if you live in uh, like strontium town, Belarus, and uh, like the water has a lot of strontium in it, that will go into your bones and you'll be like made of strontium. Well, it'll be in the, you know, it'll be in the water you drank as a kid. So it'll be in your teeth, which tend to be... Stay pretty Made of fixed. Water. In, they stay pretty fixed in composition. Oh right, right. Throughout your life, you only grow them once, based on the trace minerals you ingested. Uh, your and in your bones as well, though that changes over the course of your life. So that's a way to find out somebody might have been raised in one place but lived in another, because the composition of their teeth and bones will be different. Oh, cool. The point is, we all live in Strontium Town to one degree or another. The yeah. question is, did this person have point one six seven percent? strontium 88 or whatever the isotope is in their teeth and bones, or did they have 0.169%? Because that'll tell you whether it's this German watershed or that. So uh, do these archaeologists and so-called geologists, uh, have they done any research into whether or not more strontium means being better at breakdancing? Or, you know, <laughs> like how do you, what is, how does the amount of strontium in our teeth 
affect us in our daily lives. It affects you not at all. It's oh. invisible to you, the user. Only somebody in a thousand years picking at your skull to try to figure out what your uh, d- what your diet was like. Hmm. Uh, and because it, it affects diet as well. You know, the plants that grow using that water, which has a certain amount of this or that neodymium or strontium isotope, or even different percentages of carbon, um, because the uh, different carbon isotopes will manifest differently in plant tissue. Like wheat will have so much of this carbon isotope compared to that one. Corn and rice will have a totally different ratio. So you can actually tell not just where the person was from when they were drinking water, but also what kind of diet they had. You know, this person ate more wheat than corn or vice versa. So you can actually do some detective work about behavior and not just location based on this kind of analysis. See, I'm still I'm still not 100% sure. I mean, there there are um there are people that are going to tell me that a tiny little in, infusion of uh ambergris in my tincture is going to make like my allergic reaction to feathers go away, but you're telling me the amount of strontium in my in my elbow isn't going to make me a better football player. There's no evidence. We'd have to, we'd have evidence. to, we'd have to do extensive so testing called evidence. What would you, uh, I mean, we don't know if Rosa Luxemburg was that great a football player either way. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that, that would help neither help for or against strontium. It's right there in the word. Like if, like if you have more strontium, then you're like more strong. Do you really think strontium means strongium? <laughs> well, no, but like strong. It's like, you know... Strontium is named after the village in Scotland where it was discovered. Right, where there's a lot of strontium. And strontium. Scots are out there, like, capturing <laughs> penguins and... What if that's the only thing it was for? It's like, um, <laughs> it's whether or not... You can tell whether these bones came from this Scottish village or not. <laughs> that's the one... It's the one place that strontium appears. You, you, you do drip, like, one little drop out of your dropper, and if the thing turns pink, you're like, it's true! Well, think she about, was from Strontian. Think about Scottish sports. It's all like, how far can you throw a log? Uh-huh. I mean, they're very strong. Entry 414.GE1107. Certificate number 29469. English as she is spoke. I made the assertion here that uh, Japan has culturally been resistant to... Infection? English as a second language. Oh, sure. Right. And maybe to infection as well. I mean, they, uh, they're they a clean people. They take their shoes off in the house. Mm-hmm. They're a clean old man. Very clean old man. Uh, but luckily, like many people did, when I, when I was questioned by somebody who had taught English in Japan, saying, what are you talking about? There's All the signs are bilingual at the train station now. And a bunch of people did hop into my defense saying... You know, it's a big part of the Japanese national character that you, you know, don't look too good at English. Right. Um, because it's it's kind of un-Japanese. Right. Uh, there's a governmental policy that places a native English speaker in every public school, writes uh, a futureling named Josh. But, uh, you know, first of all, they're a, a powerful economy and an insular island, so you don't have to... You know, you can you can live a perfectly comfortable life without ever speaking English, which sure. is not true in, say, the European common market. You can drive on the left and nobody cares. <laughs> but, um, you know, the idea that, you know, Japan sees its, you know, homegrown, homogeneous culture as perfectly appropriate to its circumstance is, uh, you know, another reason for this 
resistance. And so, in fact, there are, uh, it's a trope in Japan that Japanese people are bad at speaking English. And this is yeah. not, I mean, it's, it's comedic, but it's not ridicule. You know, there's, there's some pride to it as well. Yeah. Like, we're the country that doesn't have to. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, I was I was texting with an ex-girlfriend the other day, and I was like, I'm bad at relationships. And she said, you really like that to be the story. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's funny. It's cute about me. And she was like, yeah, that's the story that you tell, that it's cute about you, that you're bad at relationships. Signed, your ex-girlfriend, Nicole. She she agrees with the story, but she does not. She doesn't find it adorable. No, she believes. She doesn't that, think it's flattering. She believes that it's like the Japanese being kind of cute about being bad at English. I didn't. I I'm not actually bad at relationships, or I don't have to be. I see. If I didn't spend so much time telling that story, you've chosen. About myself, you've chosen right. to be bad at relationships and, and bad and, at English, and you just shrug and say, <laughs> oh, I, "I did another oopsie." Oop. See, Josh pointed out, which I didn't know. Do you remember the meme about the song called Pen, Pineapple, Apple Pen that was going crazy on the internet? I have a pen. I have an apple. I have an apple pen. It's kind of a... I don't remember it. Beepy, boopy, catchy kind of a... No. Pop song? Asian pop song? No. J-pop? All your bass are belong to us is the last meme that I really absorbed. That was the first meme, and you, that was enough for you. <laughs> that was it. I was like, this, this is perfect. This one's pretty good. It's I, a perfect meme. I got a meme. <laughs> I still employ it every week. I knew the song, and I remember my kids singing along with it when it was popular, but one thing I didn't know is I didn't understand the joke. Josh says in Japan, that would be understood as a reference to Japan's lousy English. Like the song begins, I have a pen. And I guess that's a that's a, a boilerplate first sentence in a mock English conversation or curriculum. Oh, I see. Like, I have a pen, like we say all the time in English. Or like we would like we would say, you know, donde esta la biblioteca or whatever. It's, sure. it's the equivalent of that for Japanese learning sure. English. Ou a la doblevese. So these kind of simple sentences, I have a pen, I have an apple. They're, they're samples straight from an ESL textbook. Right. Like, uh, like, that, uh, like that, that little uh, inter-song uh, inter, inter in uh, Three Feet High and Rising. Which one? Um, Ecoute. I don't know. Amidi. I... Oh, yeah. I know that part. Here, do all the samples and then I'll be able to. Ecoute. I'll be able to place it. Uh, we also heard from Elaine. Hi, Elaine. Who is interested in languages. Lady and, Elaine? Yeah, it's Lady Elaine Fairchild from the uh, Museum Go Round. She enjoyed the English as she is spoke show, and she reminded me of something I had totally forgotten about, which is there was a recent occurrence earlier this year that was kind of English as she is spoke adjacent. Do you remember the scandal with Scots Wikipedia? Is this another reference to the Scots? They're really making a lot of appearances here. Yeah, they came. They came in from Strontium Town. What is what it was the what was the scandal about Scots Encyclopedia? So. You know how there's Wikipedias of various languages, right? There's yes. Estonian Wikipedia or whatever. Right. It's a much smaller, uh, it takes up only a few servers in Salt Mountain, USA. And it has more Estonians. Yeah. Uh, there is one for Scots, the Scots language, which is... Do people speak the Scots language still? Is it kind of one of those, like, it's on street signs, but it doesn't really exist situations? I mean, Scots, I don't want to insult any Scottish people, but it's... Living up in John O'Groats or whatever? It's the kind of thing where you'll look at it, and sometimes it looks like a, a you know a perfectly cromulent kind of Gaelic language. 
but some parts of it just seem like English with a Scottish accent. <laughs> like actually transcribed? Yeah, so it's it's somewhere between a language and a dialect. You know, it's, it's right on the border. You know, like a Robert Burns poem, you know, Auld Lang Syne sounds a lot, awful lot like old long since, which is exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's to a degree, it's mutually intelligible with English. Uh, and Scott's Wikipedia had, you know, tens of thousands of articles. And earlier this year, some user on Reddit and 4chan noticed oh dear. that about a third of Scott's Wikipedia, over 23,000 articles, had all been written by the same person, and it appeared to be a person who had no knowledge of the Scots language. <laughs> they had all just been written by some guy using English as she has spoke methods, basically, like a word-by-word translation, but no actual understanding of what the syntactic or usage differences would be. So when I go the geologists and archaeologists that are omnibus futurelings that are writing in, I'm probably not always that wrong because the linguists, the Scots language linguists that write in to Wikipedia, 22,000 articles? 23,000 articles. And uh, the media soon caught on to this because it's hilarious that Scots Wikipedia had kind of been written in English with a Scottish accent or some other kind of just odd gibberish using Google Translate. and they tracked down the American teenager, it turned out, who had written all these articles. Oh, I love this more and more. And it, it turned out to not be malicious for, from all, you know, he, he replied on some of the threads, and he just kind of seemed to be an odd kid. He, uh, This was what he decided to do instead he, of He liked having a project. He was medicated for OCD, so, mm-hmm. you know, he's a, you know, he... he he's he, he, neuro-differentiated. He be- he's a little different than us. He becomes obsessively interested in things and maybe, maybe in a different way than, than you or I would. And he just decided he was going to write Scott's Wikipedia and he was not troubled by the fact that he was in no way qualified to do so. Huh. But it became kind of an international black eye, not just for Scott's Wikipedia, but for Wikipedia the general. whole idea of wikis in general that, you know, Wikimedia is just, you know, it could be anybody. It, I mean, it's the same problem as on Reddit. You think you're getting or giving relationship advice, but Right. Everybody there is just three kids in a trench coat. Right. <laughs> Entry 736.AC0219. Certificate number 34112. The Lost Spitfires of Burma. The Lost Spitfires of Burma. You're going to have to remind me, although the the alleged planes here were Spitfires, the hurricane came up a lot in this ship. Is Aye, that right? the hurricane. The Hawker hurricane? Yes, great aircraft. Brian wrote us to note a fun fact about the hurricane, which is actually not fun at all. Hmm. Uh, the, the shape of the hurricane's fuselage encouraged, when the planes were hit, encouraged cockpit fires of a very severe nature. Like, yes. Like... The, the in, burn alive kind. In three to four seconds, the temperature would go up several thousand degrees. Uh, Which is, in most cases... It's not what you want. Fatal. Yeah, especially if you're flying a plane. I mean, of yeah. all the times you want the temperature to go up thousands of degrees, when you're trying to fl- fly a plane, 
right. like it's like the commercials of like, where will you be when diarrhea hits? <laughs> if you're in, if you're in your backyard trying to smelt all your pots down to make industrial quality steel for for um to you know to have your country have a great leap forward, it's one thing. But if you're <laughs> flying in a small aircraft and are hit by enemy fire and it. You're trying to win the Battle of Britain. Yeah, you're going to get immolated pretty I guess fast. it's a result of three things. The open canopy, hmm. an unarmored fuel tank in front of the cockpit. That's a problem. And then the tendency of the pilots to fly with an unfastened mask. Well, that just seems like. Yeah, it's da- daring do. That's user error. You call it daring do. I call it read the manual, Nigel. I feel like with the gas tank in front of the cockpit, whether you had your mask on or not is going to be like of a secondary importance. So – in other words, as a result of this, British medical literature actually de- created the n- nickname Hurricane Burns for the characteristic injuries, um, severe burns around the eyes and hands because people yeah. were going, ah, my eyes. Uh, Ouch. Everybody, all these pilots would come up with these exact same severe burns, and they didn't have the technology uh, to treat them. And a bunch of reconstructive surgeons had to pioneer brand new plastic surgery techniques to help skin heal after these burns. And to this day, the kinds of uh, therapies that are done for severe burns are, are exactly Derived from yeah, the same ones that were, uh, that were invented in the forties to treat hurricane burns because huh. flying the hurricane was such a nightmare. How interesting. So, you know, there was a silver lining, I guess. I guess so. Weird upside. Not so much for the pilots. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to break some eggs. Entry 104.EZ2047. Certificate number 31303. The Battle of Palmdale. This is taking us back. It is. Uh, How far back? But this was too good to leave out. When did this episode... Way uh, back. When did this entry air? The Battle of Palmdale uh, takes us all the way back to... Um, Ooh, a sept- long time ago, September, September of 2019. The before times. But as you know, 2020 doesn't exist, so it was really just a few months ago. A few short months ago. Uh, and remind me, this was a not an actual battle. That's kind of a sardonic name. Uh-huh. A little sardonic. Because uh, it was the Air Force battling itself, yeah, right? They were the trying Air- to shoot down one of their own, what, aircraft? Sh- shoot down a like a like a drone that got uh, away, and, got and away. then they started just basically strafing and bombing California. Uh, we heard from a listener who calls themselves Gretter, uh, who was having deja vu when he heard the Battle of Palmdale because it reminded him of the story of his own dad. Really? How his dad saved Kansas City. Uh, this would be well. I'm not sure if that's a black marker or or what. Yeah, it depends. Is it Kansas no, City, I Missouri, Kansas or Kansas City. City, Kansas? Thank you, Ken. Uh, this was about a decade after the Battle of Palmdale. This happened sometime in the early '60s to a uh, Captain Barton Lynn and Gretter sent us a copy of Interceptor magazine. Uh huh. I'm a longtime subscriber. Apparently, there's a magazine that's all about shooting down runaway aircraft. This just must be some. I think the some inter- general aircraft, uh, some general air force. Yeah, Interceptor magazine would would also be about intercepting planes that you didn't shoot down. Apparently, so I'm reading the article about Gretter's father, a good captain. Apparently, a plane in the Kansas City area had a pilot jettison 
and uh, and for some reason they weren't quite sure at the base whether or not whether or not he had actually blasted out of the cockpit. Uh, nobody was sure if the guy had bailed out until he actually called in and said, "Hey, I'm in a farmhouse, but my plane is still up there." Wow. So his. Let's see. What is he flying here? He's flying a F-102, or is he flying something else? Uh, it, yeah, it was a pilotless F-102 now heading straight for Kansas City, which the Air Force doesn't like. Right. Unmanned fighter jets just heading for major population centers. Well, I'll just read this aloud. So they scramble the jets. Yeah, where are you? We're, we're here on the transcript. Is, is there more than one page? I only see the one. Are you reading the transcript? Yeah. Here, let's, let's, should we do a little radio play? So this is, he said his dad produced the actual transcript of the radio conversation that resulted. And wh- so which do you want to be? Do you want to be the cool, cool, chill pilot or do you want to be the like agitated colonel? You should be, uh, you should, well, what do you want? You should be the pilot, right? Okay, I'll be the pilot. You be the agitated colonel. Okay. Uh, you start with the first Colonel Harris. Okay. This is Colonel Harris at Sioux City. 22, have you been up alongside where you can look inside the aircraft at the cockpit? I'm getting up there now, sir. Roger. This is Drumbeat. 22, are you in the clear up there now? Roger. We're about 11,000 feet. You should be like, Roger. <laughs> that kind of like oh, yeah. drugged out Air Force Super pilot. Super chill. Okay. All right. Good Good line reading. All right. Uh, drumbeat. The aircraft appears to be turning back to the west at this time. 22. You say it appears the aircraft is heading north? Uh, negative. He is turning to the port. Roger. 22. How close are you to flying alongside the aircraft at this time? Uh, we're up alongside of it right now. <laughs> now you're just like a stoner, stoner pilot. I don't know, pilgrim. And there is no pilot in the airplane? No canopy? Uh, that is affirmative. There is no canopy, pilot, or seat. So they had to check. They had to, good stuff. They had to get eyes on the plane, and it turns out, yeah, there's nobody driving this thing. Sure, it would have been weird if there had been no pilot canopy, but the seat was still there. <laughs> that's that's a real Jimmy Hoffa moment. <laughs> well, you got, you should read the the article in Interceptor here. Oh, I love this. It has a map of where the where the plane flew pilotless. Do you think like, that's real? real? I was I, I couldn't tell if that was just great Air Force. Uh, Graphic design, or if that's actually a flight path. I kind of want this. I, w- I want this magazine. I'm going on eBay immediately to find whether or not there are old copies of Interceptor magazine available. Is it? It must just be some internal Air Force magazine. I don't know. You is know. is a Deuce a 102? Is that what they call a Deuce? I bet it's an F 102. A Deuce flying around the local area is about as common as grits are in South Georgia on a Friday night beer call and fire squadron. Derp, derp, derp. Why is Dan rather uh, <laughs> writing this article? Uh, so I guess Captain Lynn gets into close formation with the seatless, pilotless, canopyless plane. And mm-hmm. as he slides into it, uh, the, uh, one of the, the other plane, the, uh, the other one or two started a gradual descent and began to pick up speed. You're going to have to explain to me how this works right, right. by maneuvering his aircraft in close formation. Captain Lynn was able to make the deuce go into a turn or roll out into straight and level flight. Is he just doing that by getting in so close that he's catching the other plane in his wow. slipstream and steering it by by air nudging it? That would be super cool. I, I would assume that he would get over with his and put his wingtip just slightly under the wingtip and like do a little flip of a do. But that, that's what I can't tell if he's actually 
could, could you act, could you, do you think you could have that kind of control where you could like bump it enough to steer? Or, or, or could you just get it in your jet wash and kind of like make it do things? I don't know. You'd have to be a pretty good pilot. All they say in the, in the interceptor magazine is in close formation. And they say the closer the formation, the more the wing would go up and the tighter the turn would be. Yeah. It sounds like he's not actually nudging it. No, he's he's using the, the, the drag off of his own wing to. He's blowing on it. Wow. So he gets so close, he's able to steer the thing. How cool. Uh, and by I mean, sli- it'd be cooler if they'd let him shoot it down with a sidewinder. That's but- what I want. By sliding it out, he was able to maintain a pretty positive control over the disla- disabled aircraft. Only at one time did the F-102 fail to return to level flight. Well, really, it's not like horseshoes. You want it to, yeah. to work 100% of the time. Yeah, but that's a pretty good rate. But in that case, he swapped sides and then got into the close formation again and lifted the other. Because you know he's only on one side, so he can only right. lift that wing. So this is the one time he had to go around and lift the other low wing. Is he the only pilot? In, or does he have a wingman too? Is he just like up here? It uh, looks like they, it looks like they scrambled three jets, but then it says the other two were sent back. Huh? They were like, "Well, our man's got it. He's got it covered." <laughs> Captain Lin knows what he's doing. So does Captain Lin steer it into the ground? What does he do? Yeah, I guess he got it away from Kansas City, and then once he was out in uh, more open. Territory. He just got it to flatten out and then spiral and then spiral down. Four thousand feet. He loses sight of it in the undercast and then it crashes in a wooded area. You know, I think in the United States, at least, you can be fairly confident, at least in the middle, that you can just send a jet plane crashing in any direction, and chances are it will hit a wooded area or plowed field and not like a small town. Yeah. I mean, you could fit everybody in the world in the state of Texas and everybody would have, you know, right. room a, th- for a, a thousand square feet. Room yeah. for a, a mid-century modern ranch. That's exactly right. And and they're entitled to that, in my opinion. Here, here. Um, but anyway, the Battle of Palmdale episode reminded our listener of his dad's story of saving Kansas City. And his dad is still with us. So he played hey. the entry for Captain Retired Barton Lynn, now 87 who sat listening attentively and nodding occasionally, that's kind of the dream for an 87-year-old, Sure. in agreement with John's aeronautical observations. Oh, well done. And that's and then a few days later, his dad uh, got a hold of him and sent over the uh, radio, the transcript of the radio conversation that we read, which, uh, which our listener had never seen. Well, it says here that a hot deuce was vectored into a three to five mile trail position to affect a missile firing if necessary. Uh, so there is a trailing guy. So they had a hot deuce, meaning one mm. that had a live missile. I've had a hot deuce before. Uh, and Wh- then, where will you be when diarrhea strikes? But then Captain Lynn, uh, you know, maintained surveillance and, uh, yeah, it just, he just dro- drove it down into the ground by staring at it hard. That's, that's just his, uh, his Air Force charisma. He was yeah. able to to will the plane yeah. into the Kansas or Missouri forest. Uh, and then the Air Force chief of staff wrote and said, I am greatly impressed with the manner in which personnel of your command dealt with the F-102 emergency of 29 March 1965. So, of course, he's writing this to some, you know, some some brass that had nothing to do with it. Well, speaking of brass, there's a picture of him on the third page of Captain Lynn getting a citation of honor at uh, an Air Force convention in Dallas from no less than General Doolittle. I would assume. Oh, hello. I would assume the General Doolittle. There aren't that many General Doolittles. He's there's Doctor Doolittle. No, yeah, he. Uh, did you know Jimmy Doolittle lived till 1993? Wow, I didn't know that. 
but yeah, that's definitely him in the uh, in the in the photo. Of that's pretty cool. Raid on Tokyo himself, congratulating Captain Lin on not crashing a uh, F one hundred two into Kansas City, which is really the, yeah, that's the Air Force's preferred policy with regard to Kansas City is not to crash any fighters into it. Captain Barton Lin is. A tall, slim drink of water. Look at that young, handsome pilot. I mean, that's just how all Air Force pilots look, I would assume. Well, he's towering over General Doolittle. He's putting the little back in Doolittle. Oof. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 17. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus. <laughs>